Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. This episode of Shameless is brought to you by the ICC Women's T20 World Cup. Be part of history this International Women's Day, March 8, with the world's best women's cricketers and Katy Perry performing live. The most important thing I have is the ability to tell stories and to tell my story, and I just need to tell it the way I want to tell it and not let anyone else have it. Welcome to Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart women who love dumb stuff. Today on the show, we're joined by the very clever, very funny Rosie Waterland. Rosie is a writer and comedian who began her career writing recaps of The Bachelor for Mamma Mia. They were recaps so funny and recaps that went so viral, she arguably became a more recognisable name than the contestants themselves. Since her recap days, Rosie has written two best-selling books, The Anti-Cool Girl and Every Lie I've Ever Told, hosted an award-winning podcast called My Mum Says My Memoir is a Lie, has toured Australia with two sold-out one-woman shows with a third coming, and written for TV too. Oh, and just last year, she signed a two-book deal with HarperCollins Australia, announcing her foray into fiction. But despite all of that dizzying career success, Rosie is still dealing with the fallout of a traumatic childhood, which manifested into post-traumatic stress disorder and ongoing mental health battles. Here, she talks about all of it, the success, the low points, and how Rosie Waterland became one of the most successful writers in the country. Just to note on this one, we do cover issues in this chat around suicide, addictions and details of childhood trauma, so it may be triggering for some listeners. Here's Rosie. Rosie Waterland, welcome finally to Shameless In Conversation. I know, finally. We've been trying for so long. We've been desperate to get you on. <laughs> and I feel like we, because um, we worked at Mamma Mia, a little bit of overlap, I think, when you were there. But you, during Zara and my time when we were lowly interns, were like the star of the show. <laughs> so I think I came up through Mamma Mia being like, oh my God, Rosie Waterland's in the building. <laughs> That's so funny. Because I started off as a lowly intern also, and that'd be you guys now. 
you're the big star. No, now. I feel like we're still early. Okay. <laughs> I know. Like always and forever. That's why you don't know how to tell people you never stop feeling like a lowly intern. <laughs> no. You always do. Yeah. Rosie, we start every In Conversation episode with the same question. Mm-hmm. We didn't actually prep you for this, so no, we'll see no how you go on the coming. fly. Okay. What are you reading, watching, or listening to at the moment that you would recommend to another woman? Oh, okay. Uh, I just finished watching Cheer on Netflix. Which... I haven't seen an episode. Oh, it's so good. It is amazing. And I think it's only like five episodes, but I swear to God, I knew nothing about it. And by the end, I was like, if Jerry doesn't make Matt from Daytona, I'm going to freak out. <laughs> like, I knew all the lingo. I was so into it. It was just nuts. The athleticism that goes into it that you don't realize is crazy. I really um, need to watch it. Yeah. It's the kind of thing that I'm seeing headlines and articles about everywhere and you just feel so out of the loop. Yeah, it is just so good. And it's going to go on to be like a whole show now because people are obsessed with it. Is it like so. the new Dance Mums? Mm, a little because the coach is nuts. <laughs> like, and this is scary because these kids fall and like break their bodies. Okay. It's intense, but they're all so into it. And the nuts so thing is, in the US, you play, play, or you are a cheerleader in college, and then after college, there's no professional cheerleading as a sport, mm. so you get to do it for those four years, and then that's it. It's over. So they're all just so obsessed with getting as much out of it as they can before they never get to do it again. What a strange culture. I know. Festers then. I know. It's so weird. I think we need to watch it on the flight home. I reckon. You should. All right, let's download it. (laughs) Rosie, tell us about the family you were born into. (sighs) Oh, my gosh. Okay. (laughs) Well, I was born while my parents were on the run from drug dealers, which is usually a good way to, like, set the tone of what my childhood was. My parents were both addicts and alcoholics and um, my dad had schizophrenia and my mum has bipolar and um, it was an interesting, tumultuous time, my childhood. We were in and out of the foster family, my sisters and I, the foster system and living with our mum occasionally, living with other family members, 20 different schools. I can't even count the amount of houses. So, yeah, pretty, I guess I would say unique. I would say that also. (laughs) When you look back, I'm curious, what emotion do you feel? I mean, you revisit that part of your life, or you did Mm. in previous parts of your career. Often you turned it into art. How do you feel when you look back at that time? I've gotten better at it. I mean, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder when I was about 17 I started having like panic attacks and and, and flashbacks and anxiety and that kind of thing and so I've been in therapy since then with the same psychiatrist so same one yeah so we're coming up on our 17th year together (laughs) oh my god yeah so uh it's a lot of therapy but a huge Aside from the therapy, a huge part of what's helped the last 10 or so years has been taking a lot of the stories from my childhood and telling them in the way I want to tell them, like really owning that narrative, I felt like gave me a lot of control back over what happened to me. And um, also making it funny has really helped. I mean, there's that saying, you know, if if you don't, what is it? If you don't laugh, you'll cry. So you might as well laugh. (laughs) And I feel like I've really gotten to that place. Yeah. So, Did those experiences draw you closer to your sisters? What's your relationship with your sisters like? Well, I have three sisters 
I have one older, Rhiannon, she's 36, and then there's Taylor, who's 25, and Bella, who's 21. And we were split, like, basically. We stayed together in some foster homes and some care situations, but it's so hard to place four girls together. And so when I was 14, I went to live with an uncle, and Rhiannon just moved out on her own because she was 17, and Taylor went into the foster system, and Bella went with her dad. And so... We didn't see Bella for 11 years and we saw Taylor on and off, um, but not a lot. So it was really up to us to sort of make sure that we had a family unit together because we didn't really have one otherwise. I mean, our mum's not super consistent in that department. Like she's in our lives, but if we wanted to have a family, it had to be each other like you guys are organizing family Christmas yes we do yeah (laughs) we have for I mean it helped I think that Rhiannon had a a kid when she was um, 17 so Rhiannon had Alira who's 17 now oh my gosh (laughs) she just started year 12 and I think because Rhiannon had a baby quite young she had to grow up very fast and we sort of had to build a what we tried to make a normal family situation for her Mm. Going back a bit before you were all separated and went into foster care and you went with your uncle, yeah. uh, you told Australian story in what was a pretty searing piece last yeah. year, and we'll pop it in the show notes for people who haven't watched it, that you never felt safe around your dad ever. Yeah. Can you speak to that relationship a little bit? Yeah, well, he was a very intense alcoholic and also he had schizophrenia, which I didn't know at the time. I didn't find out till I was a grown-up from other family members that he had schizophrenia. So he would do strange things. As a kid, I just thought my dad drank too much. That's sort of what I understood. But he could also be quite violent, never towards my sister and I. It's my sister, Rianne, and I. He's our dad. Never towards us, but towards other people, like, you know, walking down the street if he thought somebody looked at him weird or, you know, because he just had the paranoia from his mental illness and... um. He would, you know, sometimes I would hear him arguing with someone on the phone and I would pick up the other phone and he was talking to no one. So he just was, and he would constantly pass out, like the amount of times Rhiannon and I were at the shops with him and he'd be so drunk that he would just collapse in the middle of the floor. And he also had this thing with, this is actually quite funny because I feel like this is all sounding quite dire and it's like, how am I... (laughs) How do I tell funny stories about this? He used to, um, he was obsessed with shoplifting. He really liked shoplifting. But what he didn't realize was he was so effing drunk all the time that he was terrible at it. Like the world's worst shoplifter. No one's stealth when they're drunk. He was so stealth. And I, I would be with him and I'd be like five or six and I would just see him like stumble into a shop. And it was usually things for my sisters and I, like Polly Pockets or toys or weird stuff. And he would just pick it up off a shelf and just like shove it down his pants, just in full view of everyone. And I'd just be sitting there going, oh my God, we're going to get kicked out of this shopping center again. And like we sort of became known to local security guards. Oh, like no. they would come and they'd be like, okay, Tony, you, you're going to have to take that out of your pants. And like. <laughs> And me and my Jigs sister, up, just, yeah. I mean, my sister would just be like, "Oh my god!" And the like, mostly adults were really lovely. Like they would say, "Come on, Tony, just don't don't make us do this in front of the girls." Like you know, they it was it, it was. So I can see the humor in it now, but as a kid, I just had a constant feeling of like heaviness in the pit of my stomach and I would throw up a lot, which in hindsight I understand now was you know pretty intense anxiety. But as a kid, I didn't know what it was. I just knew that. My dad made me feel sick all the time with worry. 
one element of your book that I think stood out to me the most, your first book, The Antique Cool mm. Girl, and your podcast that you did on that, I listened to both. I listened to that entire series, by the way, despite already reading yeah. the book, I was like, <laughs> I want it again. One element that really stood out to me for years ever since that was the relief you felt when your dad passed yeah. or that lifting feeling. Can you speak to that? Because you were eight when he died. Yeah. And I can imagine after eight years of trauma and anxiety caused by this man, mm. it would feel very conflicting to feel that sense of relief. Yeah. I think a lot of kids have that ambivalence with their parents when they've had parents who are abusive or neglectful or scary like that. You know, he had done something particularly violent and awful in the few days before he took his own life. And and that was probably one of the scariest nights of my life, uh, what he did that night. You can read it in my book and it's on the podcast. And I remember just thinking, why does my mum let us stay here alone? Because she used to send us to stay with him for school holidays and stuff. And I remember my sister and I got in the car after that visit and we just said, don't ever make us come back here again, please, please, please. And um, a few days later, he passed away. And I just, my mum sat us down and told us and my older sister burst into tears. And I remember I just, I went to school that day because there was a dress up competition and I'd worked really hard on my costume. And I also thought just quietly, well, if they know my dad died, then I'll definitely win. This is my moment. Did you win? No. You're fucking kidding me. I didn't even win. I got like some participation lollies, like highly commended lollies, but I didn't win first prize. So I was like... That was, a, that was a pretty funny element of your first memoir, I think, that your sister was always like the one who was chosen. Yeah. And you had to watch that happen again and again. I, know. I feel like everyone with a sister can relate to that feeling of feeling, fuck. I know, particularly an older sister. Like Rhiannon was just so effortlessly cool and beautiful. And I was so desperate to be a performer and so desperate to be like, what I wouldn't have given for a stage mother, you have no idea. Like I was just so desperate to always be on and to be entertaining people and, and Rhiannon just could not give an F. Like it wasn't her thing. And like I entered this modelling competition once, like one of those ones where they have just the little setup in the middle of a crappy shopping centre and they take you into like they've just put up some barriers and you go in. And I went in and I like had I picked my outfit and it was my birthday present being in this modeling competition. I can see you're laughing because you know what's going to happen. No, because you know what? I also applied for modeling competitions know, right? when I was a kid and my sister was always like, they'd see her. Don't spoil it. But they, yeah, my sister would always go further and I'd be like, why am I not a model? I know. Well, anyway, so I went in and I did it and I was obviously a bit shit house. and my sister didn't even enter and the photographer came out and saw my sister waiting with my mom and was like, oh, my God, will you please let me photograph her? <laughs> and I was like, I just paid 90 bucks and that please let me photograph your other daughter. And Rhiannon was like, oh, fine. And so Rhiannon just goes in and just stands there for one minute, gets her photo taken, and, like, a month later we get a call that she'd won the entire effing thing and she's in, like, freaking Kmart, like, catalogues and meanwhile I'm, like, desperate for an Oscar and she just... <laughs> Did not care. I'm more astounded that they can charge you $90 to enter a modeling contest when you're a teenager. Well, no, teenager, hello, I was like seven. That's, it was like a kid's modeling contest. Oh, my God, what a money-making scheme. I know. Rosie, 
Apart from modelling competitions then, what did your life look like after he passed? It was the four of you and your mum under the same roof. How did that go? Well, we hadn't been living with him for a long time. My mum, they were together when I was little and my mum started making quite good money as a sex worker and so that kind of gave her the economic means to leave him and she left us as well with him for a while because she was like, I'm outie, kids and family. And so she... Went off to Sydney for a long time. She left when I was about six weeks old. And so we were with our dad alone for a long time. And then she met this guy in the Navy from Hawaii and she married him, I think, because she wanted a holiday. <laughs> and um, and then she finally said she wanted me and Rhiannon, and so we moved to Hawaii with her. And then after about a year she was like, he said, oh, I've been transferred to Minnesota where it's like minus 30 degrees every day. And my mum was like, okay, bye. <laughs> um, and so we just, it, I remember once he was on the ship, like, because he had to go on the ship for like three nights a week or something. And the second he left, mum was like, quick, get your stuff together. And we just ran to the airport and just never went back. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Were you happy that you were leaving and going back home? I didn't quite understand I mean I I liked where we lived and people say like oh wow Hawaii that must have been amazing I'm like it's to me the memories are the same as Australia I mm. can't really tell the difference it's not like you're when you live in Hawaii you just live in a regular suburb like we lived in Honolulu but we weren't in like you know surfing every morning by the beach yeah, yeah we say wearing lays to school yeah exactly <laughs> we, well they thought we rode kangaroos to school you know what I mean? yeah. so everyone has their own but yeah we just lived in a regular neighborhood and I mean, I, I remember I was sad to be leaving my friends at school, but I didn't really get what was happening. Mm. And so when we came back, we never lived with my dad again after that. So when he died, it didn't have a huge impact on the practical side of how we lived, but it had a huge impact on my mother, who up until then had been drinking a lot. Like she was certainly an alcoholic, but after my dad died, it just got a lot, lot, lot worse. She Talk. says he was the love of her life. I don't. So that's why. Do, does she still say that? She still says that. Yeah. Mm. Even though she was married to someone else when he died, but yeah, yeah. You went to more than twenty schools across yeah. your childhood. About that, which is like to think about that is just how much change and yeah. starting over and leaving is incredible. What was the love of writing and drama like throughout those years? I just always really liked telling stories. I really, really liked it. And I was good at writing from when I was very little. It's something I just took to quite easily. And I kept a lot of journals. And I do remember understanding that there was something interesting about my life that would be worth a story one day. Like I do remember thinking like whenever my parents did something stupid like, I'm writing all of this down. Pop like, this in the memory bank. Yeah, exactly. Like, Did you know gonna... it was different to the other kids' lives? When you get to school, you know. When you get to school. I, I don't think we realised before then, but, yeah, when you get to school and also when you start going to other kids' houses and, and you realise, oh, it's not normal to feel really nervous and unsafe and, like, you're going to throw up all the time and it's and it's not normal to have a dad who collapses in the street and like beats people up and it's not normal for your mum to take off for three weeks at a time like you you sort of it's normal for you but it's when you get to school that you realize not everybody else lives like that 
And you start to get jealous too. You start to wish that you had other lives. That's why I got really obsessed with television because I was so obsessed with having a life like the ones I saw on TV. When did you know that you were good at writing? I don't know. I mean, I think I I started like winning contests and stuff when I was quite little. And also I used school as a way to like prove I was worthy, I think. I think kids who've had childhoods like mine, uh, they go one of two ways. They either become crazy overachievers just to try and make sure that any adult they're around doesn't want to leave them or they act out because they think, well, what's the point? Because no one's around anyway. I think my older sister went that way. She like got into partying and like, you know, she started doing drugs and drinking when she was quite young. And I was just like, impress the adults at all costs. And so I was like very studious and very like goody two shoes. And, and so I liked doing well academically. And that was what I was good at. Was there an element of escapism with the drama and writing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And television as well. Like I've had a TV in my room from since I was like four or five years old and something about loving the stories on television, but also to me, television as a career and like wanting to create it was something that I wanted to do from when I was really, really young. Like I just thought whatever that is, like I want to do what they do like Mm -hmm. I want to make that and be that and do that and you know when I was little I just wanted to be the star of everything but then as I got older I realized like writing was probably what I was much better at but yeah it was just about knowing that there was something outside of my very chaotic little life that was better coming up after the break Rosie talks about turning her trauma into art but first, a word from our sponsor. Was it eight or so years ago that you first submitted to Mamma Mia? Oh, my goodness. I'm trying to remember when I first started seeing your name pop up on yeah, the Yeah, I think it was 2013. Yeah. Because yeah. you were writing blogs and your friend Tony pushed you to submit to Mamma Mia. Is that no, right? No, I wasn't even writing blogs. You know, it was totally all a scam. So I, (laughs) we love a scam. Let me explain. So like I, yeah, I went to drama school for three years and then I did creative writing at uni for three years. And so I was qualified to do nothing. So I was working in a call center (laughs) and I, a friend of mine um, had something published on Mamma Mia. And I remember I read it and I was like, I'm a better writer than that. Like, and so I thought I should, like, why aren't I being more proactive and so I said to Tony okay I'm gonna submit something to this Mamma Mia thing and he was like well you can't just submit it like you need like you need to like start a blog and like and so you reverse engineered a blog so (laughs) I like wrote the piece that I was gonna send them and then I wrote a few other pieces and then I got Tony because I had no idea how to do it so I got Tony to set up a blog and he like backdated the pieces so it looked like I'd been publishing things for like a couple of months <laughs> and then I sent the piece off to uh, Mamma Mia because they just had like a submissions email and it was just like hi I'm Rosie I'm a writer I have a like I'm a blogger here's a link to my blog <laughs> and I'm very like, chill <laughs> yeah and Tony had also set up like a Twitter and like and so he and was like here's my Twitter and like here's this piece and so yeah I didn't really have a blog I just said that so they wouldn't <laughs> think I was legit. <laughs> How long did it take for them? It was Jam, wasn't it? Jamila Rizvi, the then editor-in-chief, who got back in touch. How long did it take her to, um, to really sift through to find you? 
I think she got back like the next day. I wrote a piece that I knew would get published. Like I basically wrote a troll piece. I I wrote a piece about how when I have when or if I have children, I'll definitely have a C-section because I just don't see the point in not taking advantage of modern medicine. Like why rip your vag apart and go through all that pain? Such a good way to get mom and I was and I and I I legitimately do believe it's true because I did have an argument with a boyfriend once when I told him this I was like, I'm gonna have a C-section and he was like, don't you feel like it's just something as a woman you're meant to go through? And I was like, fuck no, yeah, no. <laughs> and so anyway, I, I do legitimately think that, but um, I was I I hammed it up a bit for the piece, knowing what they would want to publish. And so Jam got back and was like, yes, we'll publish it. And I remember it was my first experience of like hate online hatred like so many people were really mad and but a lot of people were like yeah and so jam was like if you have anything else send it through so then I just started writing other funny bits and pieces and and they kept publishing them and then after I think it was like maybe a month or so they said oh you've written so much for us and we've got this sponsored cruise so do you want to go on this cruise and write about it like as a thank you for all the pieces? And I was like, this is the pinnacle of my career. <laughs> like I just thought it was the best thing ever. So I went on this cruise and I wrote about it for them and that was over Christmas. And then in the new year, Jam was like, do you want a job? And I was like, okay. So yeah. We wanted to ask you about how formative that relationship has been you and Jam and sort of the impact that she had on your career and still I would imagine continues to have. Mm. Can you speak to that for a moment? Oh my gosh. Well, Jam's like one of my best closest friends now. She, because I was so shy when I started at Mamma Mia, I was so just broken and nerve. My mental health had not been great. My PTSD had been really intense and I sort of had shut myself away from the world. I'd gained a lot of weight And I just was very nervous about being an active part of the real world. And so I very tentatively started going into Mamma Mia. I was very nervous and Jam was just so supportive work-wise, but also in a personal, emotional way, was really lovely to me, as was Mia at the time, was really lovely. They really put in a concerted effort to kind of bring me out of my shell and, um, And it was within a few months, like I barely talked above a whisper when I was first there. And a few months later, I was like head of the social committee and like getting everyone out. (laughs) Like it was just like I just needed this tiny push to sort of get back to who I was. And they gave that to me. And they also were pretty generous with letting me write what I wanted to write. Because when you're the low-level person at Mamma Mia, you're kind of the shit kicker who has to just write whatever needs to be written. So if there's a news thing or if there's a pop culture thing or if there's a listicle, it's just like you do the dregs of what's left over, which is fine. That's all editorial assistant jobs. But, you know, they'd put me on news and they'd be like, yeah, we're never putting you on that again. <laughs> Just be bad enough at something? Well, no. because I didn't train as a journalist. I trained as a, a performer and, and a it's writer. A, it's a different thing. It it's is. entirely different skill to be a news writer and be like it a is. creative writer. And so I, you know, I would do those things and I picked up the basics of how to, you know, write. Mamma Mia has, you know, notoriously very quick turnarounds of content and, and so you'd be writing five or six pieces a day. So I got good at doing it. But... um mostly the pieces I wrote that were 
like personal humorous kind of essays they got big numbers and numbers and clicks are what matter to websites like that and so because I was good at writing them they said okay well your time is worth more doing that kind of thing than doing news and then I started doing the bachelor recaps and they got really popular and so then I sort of had a bit of autonomy over what I wanted to write. And to be honest, a lot of it came from Jamila giving me the best piece of advice she ever has work-wise. And I still tell this to everyone who asks me how to get to where I am. Or people say to me, how do I write like you? And I say, well, first of all, don't write like me. Write like yourself. But Jamila said to me way back when, like, Rosie, you need to create a U-shaped hole wherever you work that no one else can fill. Like, because if you do that, you will be indispensable to the company you work for. And that's what I did. I mean, the con- the kind of content I wrote for Mamma Mia, it was rosy content. No mm-hmm. one else could write it. So I want to give a depiction because we worked there during that time where you were the major draw card of that company. Now, for people from the outside, they would know Rosie's recaps did very, very well. Let me paint you a picture. I think maybe out of, there probably be 40 articles a day maybe going on the website during that time. You might write one. Your article on its own would get as much traffic as the other 39 combined. (laughs) Literally not exaggerating, you were solely responsible for about half, maybe more of the website's traffic. That is insane. Like as people who have worked in digital media, I think anyone in the industry would know that is unheard of. What is it about the writing? What was it about the Bachelor recaps in particular that people adored so intently and came to you specifically so intently? Because you reach people who weren't even Mamma Mia readers. Yeah. I I still don't know. I mean, I I didn't compromise how I did it. I find a lot of people who write online will – I mean, I just told you that I did it with that first article that I submitted, that you do what you think – the website wants and what you think people want. And that's fine to get clicks and whatever. But, you know, I got to a point where I was like, I'm just going to write what I think is funny. And so I just wrote it the way I liked it. I also think I never made a lot of nasty fun of the show or particularly the girls on the show because back then it was just The Bachelor. I just, you know, it was it was clever satire. It wasn't just a bitchy recap of what had happened that night. It was, you know, clever feminist satire. And I think it made people feel smart for watching something silly. But I just, I I still can't explain it. Was it hard to not let it go to your head? Because it was like the attention on you and the adoration coming your way must have been overwhelming. I have the most crushing low (laughs) self-esteem. Like, so not really, like, it... I never really did, like, and I have such bad imposter syndrome. Like, I'm always panicked that um, it's all going to disappear and the next thing I write is going to be the thing that people don't think is funny. And and there was this huge drama that happened when um, I put up this post. <laughs> oh, God. So there was this girl who made friends with me. Oh, I remember this. Who was quite famous. She'd been on The Bachelor and she made friends with me. And I don't make friends easily, but we'd had similar childhoods. And, and so we sort of connected over that. And I'd written really positively about her time on the show. And, and so we met up and she asked me a lot about the recaps and how I write them and how I do it. And, and I sort of opened myself up to her in a way I rarely do because I'm quite shy. And then I found out a couple of weeks later she was writing her own recaps for one of our direct competitors. And I just felt so hurt 
because I thought I'd made a friend and then I was like, oh, <laughs> I think I got used. And I was really angry and so I put up this post like, I do recaps and people think they're funny and I can't even remember what I said but it was like, but you know, like, yours will never be as funny as me and, like, get fucked. Like, because I was just, like, angry and bitter and overreacting and I was, like, pissed off. Especially if you're feeling lonely in your life and you feel like you've finally made a connection with yeah. someone and that's taken away from you. That's And so anyway, shit. so I just wrote that. No, I I put it on my public Facebook because um I had blocked her from my personal <laughs> one because I was, like, very upset. And then I – but I knew – I was, like, she'll know that it's for her. You know what I mean? And so then I just went to bed and I woke up in the morning and it was, like, national trending news that Rosie thinks that she invented recaps and no one else is as good as writing them at her as her and no one else can – like, she thinks that, like, she should be the only one allowed to write them and look at this post she wrote and she's so up herself. And I was like, no, 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 no wait rewind it's like hang on guys wait up wait what what happened and so then I like tried I went on and I was like I can explain this I can explain this and I went on and I was like no 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 guys this is aimed at one girl who did something shitty and I was really upset with her and I wrote the post to her because I was mad about this thing that she did I was like I don't think I invented recaps I was like I started writing them because I loved other ones I'd read. Like, and so anyway, I was like, so that'll fix it. And then 10 minutes later, it was like, we don't care what you said. Like, it just, that made it worse. Like Rosie doubles down. (laughs) Yes, it was. It was like, it was my first experience of getting like hatred because so much of the energy directed towards me was very positive of everything I wrote. And oh my God, I had like a mental breakdown that day. Like I had people... They were tagging me in all their comments and posts and tweets, like just saying Rosie is like a can I swear? Yeah, oh, like of Rosie is a fucking dickhead, and Rosie's up herself, and like how could Rosie have such a big head? And what was so ironic to me is I was like, you don't realize I have the lowest self esteem of anyone you've ever met. Like I can't even to think, and and I had like quite prominent people, famous women in media privately messaging me saying you are like you have fucking embarrassed yourself like you are a fucking joke and I'll tell you afterwards oh I can't wait (laughs) um you know I had really cruel incessant non-stop and like eventually I just put up a post and I said like please I'm really I'm even like shaking right now talking about it. it it was the worst day and I said look I'm not handling this you're all still going to be talking about it. Can you just stop tagging me in it? Like, I can't, please stop tagging me in all of this because like mentally I'm not handling this very well. And I thought like people would say, wow, okay. No, that just, they were like, oh, Rosie doesn't want us to tag her at Rosie Waterland. (sighs) And like, it was just the most intense thing. And what's interesting is like, it, I mean, it all blew over eventually, but there are still some people who, when my name comes up, they say, oh, Rosie's that dickhead who thinks she invented recaps or whatever. And But the last, probably the last 12 months or so, I've had about three or four different people contact me who were some of the worst people that day to say, you know, I feel like I just want to reach out. A couple of years ago, I said some really awful stuff about you online. And I think the attitude towards internet pylons has is changing and people are getting more of an understanding of what it means to go after someone online 
And we didn't really have that because this was like 2015, I think. So yeah, the last year or so, I've had quite a few people reach out to me and apologize. Isn't that interesting? Does it, did it change your perspective on pile on culture? I think it's such a unique thing to talk about because I think a lot of people listening won't really understand the terror Mm. of being in the public eye and being terrified that you're going to misstep and for it to happen again. But the reality is when you're writing online and speaking on podcasts as much as you are, something's going to come out. Do you know what I mean? That's just natural. Like we're human and flawed people. Yeah. Did it change your perspective in terms of like you didn't want to criticize people online as much because you knew how it felt to be at the bottom of it? Oh yeah. I was petrified for a long time after that. And I really censored myself. Like, cause you know, it's no secret that Mamma Mia and you know, not just Mamma Mia, most of those kinds of websites, they crave kind of provocative content because that's what gets clicks Mm. like you know people arguing about something and and so opportunities would come up where I would say oh you know I was kind of thinking about something that I don't know Kyle Sanderland said that kind of annoyed me and Mia would just be like write it go and write it right now and I would just say nah don't want to, not anymore. Whereas a year before that, I would have just been like, totally, here's my opinion that I haven't really thought a lot about, but I'm just going to quickly get it done and off it goes. Whereas after that, I was just so scared of ever getting piled on like that again. And I was really embarrassed as well, because a lot of people that I really respected, like a lot of comedians, and like I said, a lot of online female writers were really cruel to me. And I wasn't I mean, I was upset that they were cruel, but I was also embarrassed that they thought I was a piece of shit because I liked and respected them so much. Mm. And I was like, oh, my God, I just I hated that I thought everyone thought I was a dickhead. I think that's the most difficult aspect of this kind of work in that everything you do is public and you don't have a boss, but sometimes it does feel like the audience or the community will hold you to account for even small things. What is your relationship with regret like? Because I know that's something that Zara and I have been working through a lot over the last 12 months, that sometimes you will make mistakes or sometimes you will say things that you regret and you can't necessarily take them back and it's Mm. out there and it's done. And I think I personally have had to work through regretting things that are already out there. How do you deal with regret? Look, it's a lot easier for me now because I virtually opted out of doing opinion after I don't really do opinion anymore <laughs> and that that whole incident has a lot to do with it and you know my podcast that I do now just the gist isn't really what you guys do in that we don't talk about like we don't spend a huge amount of time talking about current news events and our opinions on them and stuff like so I am not often in that situation anymore like you guys are in every week but um I will say that I towards the end at Mamma Mia I realized that the best thing to do is to just own it when you F up, like just say, you know what? I didn't, I said something dumb and I didn't realize, and I'm just going to do my best to learn from it and move on. I think it's when people double down that it makes it worse. Mm. I mean, I, it's very easy for people in our position to say like, you know, you don't know how easy it is to F up and you don't know how easy it is to say the wrong thing. But it is, it's true. And I think as we, as our opinions about pile on culture and cancel culture and all that kind of stuff grow and develop and we realise the human toll it actually takes, I think people will come to appreciate a genuine apology more because you can't just cancel someone forever. 
I mean, and if we don't listen to and attempt to forgive people who are genuinely sorry for and want to learn from a mistake they've made, then what incentive is there for them to ever do better? Yeah, do better? and grow. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Hey guys, just Mish and I popping in here very, very quickly because we wanted to tell you a little bit about a fundraiser we're doing with our co-working space, Just Co, on February 18. We are doing an intimate career Q&A event at Just Co's William Street space where we'll be chatting all things business, rejection and entrepreneurship. So if you've got questions around building a brand, growing an audience for your podcast or how we taught ourselves to run a business with absolutely no knowledge, whatever (laughs) Zara, come down and chat with us. To support communities affected by the fire, all ticket proceeds from this event will be donated to the Red Cross Bushfire Appeal. The event will be held on Tuesday the 18th of February at 6pm and tickets cost $45. But we have a special code for you and all proceeds will be going to the Red Cross. Mish, tell them the code. That special code is SHAMELESS. Very creative, I know. Just SHAMELESS, all capital letters at the checkout. That gives you $20 off that $45 ticket price. So click on the Eventbrite link in our show notes grab a ticket come talk all things career with us Zara we will see you guys there through a lot of the work that you've been doing you said at the very beginning you made a lot of art out of your struggle but you also made a lot of art out of your struggles with mental health Mm -hmm. did you ever get really tired of that yes (laughs) yes I mean I it's that trap you fall into when you and I fell into this trap at Mamma Mia and it's a huge part of why I ended up leaving is just that I didn't want to write about myself personally all the time like and you know you tell these stories and then you reveal more and you reveal more and you reveal more and then it gets to a point where it's like well what dramatic huge thing are you going to reveal next it's like you have to one-up yourself yeah and it's like that's not me I don't I'm a good writer as a craft like I don't I yes I told I wrote my memoir and I told the story of my childhood because I had an interesting story to tell and then I also wrote about my mental health stuff because that was you know I worked at a place that wanted me to write columns about myself so I did but then you know there were weeks when I had nothing and it was like we'll come up with something and I was like but Nothing dramatic happened to me this week, unfortunately. So I bad, watched some TV. And so that's when I started realising that it was time for me, I think, to move on. You know, I'm a trained writer and a trained storyteller. I mean, I joke about being not qualified to do anything, but six years of drama school and six years of creative writing essentially means I'm a trained storyteller. And I take a lot of pride in that skill and I take that skill very seriously and I just got to the point where I you know didn't have a lot left to write about every I didn't want to keep mining my trauma for for entertainment and so you know it's re-traumatizing as well I imagine it can be yeah I mean that's what my show at the moment Kid Chameleon is my stand-up show this year and that's essentially what it's about is that I spent a long time writing and talking about this stuff And then I sort of decided I wanted to leave it be. But then I handed the story over to a couple other projects. So I did the podcast with my mum. Mum says my memoir is a lie. You know, in which we sat down together and we went through my first book and she basically contested everything I wrote (laughs) because she says it's all lies and I made it all up. And, and, you know, it was a very entertaining podcast and very people find it extremely fascinating to listen to and it's had like, you know, 7 million downloads and, and it won an award and... 
and I, I knew, that, I mean, the creative person in me knew it was going to be great content, but um, it was re-traumatizing doing it. And part of me wishes I hadn't done it because allowing her to take back control of the narrative that I'd fought so hard to take control of myself really messed with me mentally. And the other thing that I talk about in my show is that when I did Australian Story, I ended up back in psychiatric hospital after doing that because it was the same thing in that, you know, I was handing over control of my narrative to other people, which given how important it was to me to have had control of that, that was a very vulnerable position to be in. But you think, you know, well, it's Australian story, so it'll be fine. Yeah, like I've got to do it. Um, But, and look, I I won't, it's an excellent show, a very well-respected show, but I will say that the way they handled my story and my sister's story and some of the things they asked me to do in order to film that story were very traumatising. Like they asked me to get into my pyjamas and sit in a blanket fort in my house and act depressed so they could get shots of me looking depressed like I wrote about in my book, which I found very upsetting. And then they also asked me to... um, I wrote in my second book about um, calling Jamila the night I attempted suicide and they asked me to get into my pyjamas. I'm going to even cry talking about it. I can't believe they asked me to do this. They asked me to get into my pyjamas. I was in my house and they said they were coming over just to film shots of me watching TV. And when they got there, the producer asked me to get into my pyjamas. They were going to turn all the lights off and they were going to take a camera from the outside and through the living room window, they wanted me to reenact the phone call I made to Jamila the night I tried to kill myself while they filmed it so they could use that footage in the episode. And What did you say? I was going to say, do you have any power in that? I cracked it. Yeah. yeah I just said, no, I'm not. This is not your content. I can't believe yeah. you even asked me to do that. Like I was so speechless and I went into my bedroom and I like cried for a minute I was like I can't even and so in the end we compromised and I said okay you can film me in my pajamas just sitting on the couch and I'll look a bit sad (laughs) like because I didn't I, I was just like oh my god I can't you know here's a compromise and that was you know that's I immediately regretted handing my story over to them. I was like, why did I do this? Like, you know, and the theme of my show is, you know, as a kid, I, I had to be a chameleon to survive. I had to shape shift and, and adapt and, and sort of reassess every situation and switch and change. And the one thing that allowed me to sort of stand on steady ground and stop feeling like I had to be a chameleon all the time was finally telling my story. And then I, you know, handed it over to other people the last couple of years and um, it was totally re-traumatising. And so it wasn't, people don't know that the night Australian Story aired, I watched it from a psychiatric hospital because I was so messed up from the experience of filming it. And, you know, I've talked to them since then and I told them how awful it was and, and they have been 
they the executive producer of the show has been amazing and it has been really lovely and um you know organized a trauma counselor if me and my sisters wanted to talk to him and um but you know it just i i think it just is um it just taught me that the most important thing I have is the ability to tell stories and to tell my story and I just need to tell it the way I want to tell it and not let anyone else have it. Totally. You're also working on a book the, at the moment with Jamila Rizvi. Two books, right? One yeah. fiction, one non-fiction? Well, sorry. Yeah. But, but, a lot on my plate. <laughs> I was going to say you're busy, but I think given what you were just talking about, the content of the book is quite interesting, the one mm. you're writing with Jamila. It's about this huge gap between how we handle people with sort of physical brain injuries in comparison to sort of mental illness. Yeah. What do you think Think needs to be done in order to bridge the gap between how society and medical professionals deal with and talk about mental illness because clearly even people who are making television didn't understand yeah. how the trauma could be reignited through their work. Yes. And I do think that's true. That's a good point. I think they just didn't understand that the the things they were asking my sisters and I to do could be re-traumatizing. And I think after what happened with us and talking to them, they've taken it very seriously that you know, they need to deal with instances of past trauma better. But, well, yeah, Jamila and I, because, you know, as Jamila's spoken about, she's had a benign brain tumour the last couple of years that's been incredibly disruptive and awful for her life. She's had two major brain surgeries. And um, we were talking about how when she first got out of hospital after her first surgery, she came home and there were 11 lasagnas that had been delivered by different friends and family. And I was like, oh, when I got out of hospital... I just went home and ordered Uber Eats by myself. <laughs> um, and so that that one anecdote just got us into a conversation that kept growing and growing and growing and growing that I've had this incredibly debilitating, you know, mental health stuff that I've had to deal with throughout my 20s through, through the PTSD. And, and, you know, they do say that childhood trauma, it affects the way your brain develops. So it is, in essence, a brain injury also. And she's had this incredibly traumatic brain injury from the tumour, yet her illness is taken far more seriously than mine. And, of course, we're both writers, so we were like, let's write it. <laughs> um, which is what we're doing now. I mean, I don't know. I don't have the answers. People always ask me for the answers, and I say, I don't know. I mean, I'm writing a book about it, so I hope that helps. I just think mental health needs to be taken more seriously across the board. Mm. And that, you know, comes from a macro and a micro level. It's, you know, it's society, it's the government, it's people. It's it's a lot of things. I wish I could solve the problem. I it's hard, right? It. Because I imagine so much of the work you've done in telling your own story has been incredibly helpful, but to expect people to tell their stories in order to fix the conversation is a huge load. Yes, it is. And, you know, that's even this book has been hard for me because even little things like Jamila said okay so I'm going to write a chapter about the day I you know went to the doctor and I hadn't been feeling well and I got a scan and I got diagnosed with a brain tumor and she goes so can you write your diagnosis story and I was like oh um well I just had 17 years of trauma and then I was getting panic attacks all the time and then I went to the doctor and I said what's wrong with me and he said it's going to take a few years of therapy and I'm still in therapy. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't have a diagnosis story. Yeah. Like, mental health is not as clear cut. And so even, you know, figuring out how to make our stories kind of work together and compare and contrast them for the book, that's been a huge eye-opener for me because I'm like, oh, wow, how do I explain this in a way that is going to be helpful for people? And, and um, But, you know, I do like the idea of 
this really being like one of the last things I ever write about my mental health. Mm. Have you <laughs> like, enjoyed writing fiction? Oh my god, yes! I cannot I am, oh. wait to when, read your fiction. When yes. are we waiting for? Twenty twenty one. Twenty twenty one. So I'm writing it at the moment. It's due soon. It's a, basically a book. I'm kind of saying it's the new Bridget Jones's diary. Like it's set in diary form, and it's about a girl who works at a women's website called Fempire. Fempire. And her experiences and day to day life in that environment and her the rest of her life as well. So I am you know, so excited. I don't know if it'll remind anyone of anything, but we'll just see when it comes out, I guess. Yeah, we will totally see. But I cannot tell you how nice it is to go, oh my God, writing a book doesn't have to be an emotionally traumatic experience. <laughs> yeah, it can be fun. Writing a book can actually be really fun to do. So like, I'm so glad I've switched to fiction. It's oh, the best. That's so good. We have two questions to okay. finish off with you. What is your career highlight? Because mm-hmm. you've had so many and we will of course list them at the very beginning of this episode. But what is your personal highlight? The day in your career when you went, you know what? I've fucking done really well here. It was recently, actually, and it's not something that people will know about, but I am creating, developing my own TV show that I'm also starring in and the head writer of. And a month ago, we had the writer's room for it, the very first writer's room. And I was sitting in a writer's room with this team of TV writers and producers there to write my show. And I was like, I did sort of take a second on the first day, like, this is my ultimate dream come true like, I can't believe I'm sitting here doing this like that was that's amazing, amazing. That's, that is incredible yeah. that is so exciting I know I'm really excited and <laughs> the last question we always ask is what is success to you with all of this in mind how do you feel successful I really just want to move into a house that I never have to move out of ever again then I will feel successful and I know that's such a basic dream but I've honestly just I don't know what it feels like to have the security of just one place that you live and you never have to move. So that's when I'll feel like I've made it, when I can buy a house and live in it forever. I think that's a wonderful dream. I think that's a wonderful measure of success. Well, in too. Sydney, that's everyone. Too. I was going to say, yeah, good luck. <laughs> yeah, no. Rosie, thank you so, so much. We have loved so much finally having you on. And thank you for giving up so much of yourself. You, you always seem to give up so much of yourself for the benefit of others. And we are so, so grateful to have been able to talk to you and listen to you. And we're so excited for your shows and your books and everything coming thank out. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much. Oh, rosiebottleland.com. <laughs> in the show notes, we yeah. will do a okay, blurb after that. We'll do, yeah. we'll do it. I'm all. so bad at my Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation with Rosie Waterland. If you would like to hear and see more from Rosie, you can do a few things. The first is follow her on Instagram at Rosie Waterland. The second is download her podcast, Just the Gist. The third is head to one of her shows. Rosie is doing her Kid Chameleon show in Canberra on the 23rd of February and then heads to South Australia on the 25th. It's a critically acclaimed performance and tickets are about $40. We will pop the full list of her tour dates and where you can buy tickets in our show notes. As for us, well, if this is the first time you've ever listened to Shameless, hello. We interview influential people every Thursday, but we also do Monday episodes, which are a wrap of the week in pop culture and celebrity news. If you would like to hear more from us and be the first to know when an episode drops, just click that big purple subscribe button at the top of your Apple podcast app or click follow on Spotify. We will be back in your ears on Monday.
Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.